we've heard a lot about ESG in there. Obviously, that's one of the main things that is affecting every part of our industry in probably every part of, of Europe, every part of the world at the moment. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a bit later. We're also going to be talking about the growth picture in Dublin, which from the other side of the narrow sea is incredibly enviable. Um, but we're also going to be looking at how the two go together. And I think one of the questions that we're going to be focusing on quite a bit is almost the is it a conflict? Can actually be, it be mutually supportive? Will the one benefit the other? We're going to try and explore that a little bit. So if I can welcome up my panellists, um, if we start with, with Patrick Phelan, who's Managing Director, Ireland of Ballymore, and John Rigg, Director of Research at Savills, Hazel Jones, Strategic Planning Director at Bactra, and Colm Lauder, who I said I get it wrong, uh, Head of Real Estate Banking at Goodbody, and finally, Marie Finlay, Head of Real Estate at EY Law, London, uh, Ireland, sorry, London before. <laughs> Great, um, this is our panel, fantastic, I'm going to turn over here. The, let's start with the, the growth position, because I said coming over, um, no matter how long it takes you to get here, um, from not that far away, it really is, it really is an enviable position. So, how, let's just do a quick recap, if we can, of, of how we got to, to that position where we're seeing the growth that we've got in Ireland, despite the, the macroeconomic picture now, and, and just a, a sort of, let's do a quick recap of that. So, Mairead, if we can start there. Yeah. Um, I suppose, without going too far back into history, um, I suppose what would be true, I think all of us here would know that um, before the uh, financial crash, Ireland was... Uh, was a place where Irish people sold and bought to Irish people, you know, within within uh, to, to, to each other. Um, international investment really only stepped up after after the crash, I suppose, where opportunity was they saw opportunity in the Irish market. I think that's probably fair to say. And certainly, when I started to get more involved myself in and uh, working with international investors who mm. were looking at looking at Ireland in a more meaningful way, so I think. Um, that's certainly where it began from our, our growth from a, attracting international investment into the real estate market. It grew from there. And that's, that's shifted again, hasn't it? So we've, we've got uh, obviously the talk on the other side of, the, of, of the, the river about a potential Brexit dividend. That hasn't been seen. But has there been one, and I'll throw this out to the panel as well, has there been a, a bit of a Brexit dividend here? Do you think that that, that gaze of investors has started to focus more on safer places like Dublin? I suppose um, looking at it from a, a legal lens, I suppose, which would be you know, what I do, um, I think, and certainly I, I worked abroad and I did an awful lot of inward investment from, from abroad into the UK market, actually, predominantly, um, before Brexit. And then Brexit happened, everybody paused, I think, in shock for a little while, and uh, certainly my clients, and then they were looking at other markets, Germany, but Ireland became something now again I suppose I was pushing in a small degree because I, I know it so well I, I could and there was a bit of an education piece certainly I would hear was Ireland not part of the UK at one point but um, <laughs> certainly the what we have here from a obviously the guys here will have more of an indication but from a legal perspective we were we have a very strong legal system mm. um, it's, uh, it's investor friendly there's a number of different ways that investors foreign investors can invest into the country and We've tried and tested procedures. It's a strong, it's a strong system, and it's a safe system. Uh, so that that brings investor confidence from a legal perspective, into uh, to look at Ireland as a as a serious market for them. Great. Yeah. Do you want to pick up on that? Because yeah, 
I suppose in terms of the way we look at the market now, and we look at how far we've evolved over that 10, 12 years period of, of growth since the bottom of the market in 2010 and you know, one of the big levels of change which put us on the map more internationally was we grew up as a market. We became a professional and transparent property market to invest in. You know, we go back to 07, 06, again, Irish investors, Irish debt, buying and selling from Irish people. Very little transparency, very little reporting standards uh, in the market. You know, as the market recovered, institutional capital came in at a much bigger scale. But with that, it brought a layer of reporting in terms of valuations, openness in terms of performance. And you know, that is something that once you get the ball rolling from a transparency standpoint, other investors consider the market. You know, one of the big moves really for us was when we had created a listed property environment that brought in compulsory reporting of valuations, of rents, so people understand and pinpoint realistically what's going on in the marketplace. And once you have that additional layer of transparency, those public sector funds from Germany and elsewhere will come in because it's seen as a reputable place to do business. Uh, and that's been the big evolution, is that information uh, benefit which we've had over the last 10 years. And unfortunately, you know, you know, that is not something which is always going to be there. We can risk that. I think one of the big challenges we face in the market now is there is an air of contraction in terms of we've lost more of the public market vehicles, which means it's inevitable we will lose some transparency in certain segments. I think the Dublin office market <coughs> being one. Um, so you know, it's not a guarantee that we have it, um, but we're in a good position now in terms of the information that we have, and that's how it's reputable internationally. So it's, um, that's encouraging. Um, there are obviously other you know, clear positives and clear benefits in terms of which we've benefited from. I think obviously the, the commonality of the legal system with the UK makes it very easy to understand. It's a, generally a favourable environment for property from a landlord perspective, despite obviously some regular changes and headaches, but it is considered a favourable market. Our leasing structure is very, very strong. You know, and one of the big areas of hunger which we continue to see from investors is there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of volatility, be it on rates or on, on inflation ticking up. So we want long-term income. Yeah. You, know, you can buy an office building in Dublin, grade A, and if it's a new building, you're going to get 12 years on expired lease term with a good blue chip tenant. It's very difficult to find that equivalency elsewhere in Europe at the moment. So how much of... of um of Dublin's growth picture and in terms of the sustainability of that, how much that, of that is dependent on that inward investment? If that were to suddenly slacken, I mean, we're looking again at the macroeconomic picture, what happens? To me? Or yeah. somebody else? Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly. Certainly. Yeah, if we look at you know, factors we'd be thinking about and risk factors to be concerned about going forward is, you know, what's going on on the west coast of the US in terms of the tech sector? Obviously, there have been some increases in redundancies and defaults as well from businesses there. You know, that could create a concern. But, you know, certainly, and John would be a better place than me to sort of look at the numbers, but if we look at, you know, deal flow in the office market, about 40% ICT generally over the last four yeah, or five years. 60, yeah. So you know, if we start to see a slowdown, in the US West Coast, the tech sector, that'll have a knock-on effect in the Irish market equally. Mm. I, I was just speaking actually last week to the head of research samples in the US, and she was picking up this point. And there's been a lot made of, uh, say, the San Francisco market, um, and they're seeing a lot of gray space coming back to the market. And the reason actually that's driving that, and it's kind of puzzled people over here somewhat, is that the government restrictions around COVID are much stronger, and it's mm. so much more severe. So you couldn't really go to the office, and that really kills sentiment. Uh, but it is interesting from a point of view where that market was probably the strongest in the US and it goes to uh, probably the weakest. So, 
you know, we have to be, I guess, forward-looking. Sure, we've got good dynamics at the moment. I think they'll continue. Uh, and it's that forward-looking picture, I think, that is uh, where Ireland, I think, on a relative basis, uh, stands to, you know, st is quite strong at the moment, yeah. Hazel, if I can come to you on that, I mean, do, does Dublin have the, um, does it have what it needs to be forward-looking? Does, does it have what it needs for that growth to be sustainable? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about uh, the growth happening in the last 10 years, but I'd have a slightly different perspective. I think the foundations of the growth that we see not just in Dublin, but in Ireland, started a long time ago, and they've been sustained for a long time. It goes back to something that probably a lot of people here don't even remember, which was back in the early 60s and the introduction of free education and the recognition that education was the basis of any, any hope of development. And that led to, you know, instead of people leaving school at 14, they were then in school, they were all educated, they then went on to further education, recognition that the tech sector was um, you know was the growth sector. I mean, it must be 30, 30 years. Maybe somebody correct me if I'm wrong. It must be more than 30 years since Intel first moved into Ireland, and of course, Intel moving moving into Ireland attracted uh, lots of others. And that huge credit has to be given to the Industrial Development Authority to the tax system as has been for a long time. Now it's obviously changing at the moment, but you now have built up, I suppose, such a momentum of confidence in the tech sector, in, in the Irish situation, that um, it's no longer just about tax. It's about all the other stuff. It's about an available workforce, a well-educated workforce, and, and the tech sector then attracts, you know, we, it's not just the tech sector we focused on, it's the pharma sector, the food sector. So we're not, we're not just dependent on any single, I think we've, we've spread our eggs into yeah. a number of baskets and I think that will help sustain us. Um, so I think while there might be a bit of a wobble there at the moment because of what's going on internationally and what's affecting everybody, certainly from our perspective, on the development side, mm. we have a, a wide portfolio of different areas into which we are um, invested, and we have about 200 million under construction at the moment, but by September we expect that to be half a billion. So, and, and we're not, we're not rowing back from that, we're, we're moving forward. So to me that is uh, an expression of confidence generally in Dublin, mostly we're in Dublin, but currently uh, we're looking at Cork, we're looking at Limerick, we're looking at Galway, because the National Development Plan is talking about, you know, that we need to spread that growth. So I think that, I think that while there are challenges there, I think we have enough of a foundation in, in, in Dublin and, and in Ireland that we're going to continue to attract uh, you know, uh, users, yeah. and once we have users, and of course, the biggest challenge for us at, at the moment, absolute bar none, is to sort out our housing. And on housing, I'll come to you, Patrick. I mean, this, it, it seems it's, it's quite a, a it's quite a good point, isn't it? When you said that that it's not just it's not just tech; it's everything that surrounds that. It's everything that's come out of that. The whole the whole economy is far more sophisticated and and uh, interlinked. Um, 
and with that you have these these other development for example we were talking earlier that, that some of the the leading sectors at the moment are living and and uh, logistics um but let's let's just go on to to housing um we we're seeing growth in that sector we're seeing a huge amount of of, of need of demand um are we seeing the supply coming through no is the answer yeah like look i, I mean to answer your question on the demand side it's still growing. Our demographics, as anyone will have seen from the census, you know, are proving that we have more people coming in, whether that's net inward migration, and also obviously as our bubble of younger people come through, they all want housing. So fundamentally, that's what's driving the demand side of the equation. What's helping to support that demand in terms of affordability is the fact that wages are still rising, we're still creating jobs in the economy, and so they're two very positive things, and we're seeing that in the Ballymore business right across the piece. Um, across our entire sales book at the moment, we have something like eight unsold houses, which is an incredible statistic when you think of the volumes that we have, that we, that we build every year. It's about 500 plus a year, excluding our PRS business. So, you know, that tells you where the demand equation is. From the supply side, I think, you know, I don't want this to be about how the problems are in supply, but you can take it from our perspective that we have all engines in Ballymore driving supply, and yet we're still only able to get to that number that I mentioned. And, and that's a combination of things. There's no silver bullet, unfortunately, to solve supply. Um, you know, it's, it's a combination of planning, services, production capacity, i.e., do we have the construction people on side? Um, do we have them in the right boxes? And there's two parts, do we have the right planning in the right locations? And unfortunately, in the Irish market, there is that dislocation, which is going to continue. On top of that, we now have you know, more uncertainty, and I don't think anybody should ignore that in the funding markets. Debt rates are rising. That's going to make viability more challenging. Um, and so from my perspective, I know the government is on the record at saying that we'll be building 30,000 homes a year. I don't see that coming through. I don't see that being exceeded, certainly. And I think, if anything, there's a risk to the downside because I just don't think either the funders are going to be as easy, nor do we, in Ireland yet, have we solved the problems that are holding up production. Well, uh, uh, John, can you give us a, a, a quick idea of, of what those problems are, just like a, a, an overview of, of what is holding, holding supply back? Yeah, sure. I suppose number one is uh, viability, um, and why is viability being affected? Uh, and that's a number of factors. Like there's a shortage of labour, uh, there's building cost inflation. Into the mix, we have uh, rising cost of debt, which is the newest one, but you're just adding it into a mix that's already quite challenged. And probably above all, I'm, I'm sure the panelists will agree, is probably planning. Uh, the planning system, you can't underwrite planning risk in any reasonable way in, in the country at the moment. Uh, so you can't even have a, you know, a pessimistic view or an optimistic view, you just can't have a view. So, you know, you can't price, you can't underwrite things. Um, and that's probably the biggest uh, piece. And I saw to Patrick earlier, and he, he felt actually probably might have gone backwards in that regard with the end of the SHD pro process. So, um, and something that we've been looking at as well is, uh, you know, I think it's actually potentially um, deteriorate further because we're now looking at adding another challenge into the, into the mix, and that's the land. So the land is going to be cut uh, in the upcoming development plans, the draft plans. Uh, South County Pla Dublin has just passed it. Uh, Mead has, has finalised its one as well. Uh, and we've a lot less land in these plans compared to previous plans. So this, this is to, to stop sprawl, this is to, to encourage density of development. Uh, 
Is there anything else that's going hand in hand with that to, to actually promote density, or is it just you can't build out, so yeah. deal with it? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like they're um, they're hoping to diesel or uh, to careful my words, but um, greenfield sites are looked less favourably upon uh, compared to brownfield sites. But brownfield sites, you know, are fantastic. Uh, people know there's demand there. It's the it's the viability side of it. Uh, scalability, loads of challenges. Uh, again, better people placed in this panel to discuss them than me. Um, but you know, so we're, we're risk basically cutting the overall uh, land input, and that's the you know that's a starting block in the construction process, uh, and that's only really going to start to take effect going forward. So it's another it's another piece that's in the mix now. Well, I suppose Thanks. some of our problems are um, they're problems, but they're good problems. So, for instance, the labour shortage. The reason we've a labour shortage and a skills shortage is because we've thousands of people working on the National Children's Hospital project, an enormous, a huge project, with thousands of construction workers working down in the, in the next fab, fab plant down in Intel, with thousands of workers working on farm, the construction of pharma plants in West Dublin. And that's only in Dublin, never mind elsewhere. So you've got all of these, and, and we've thousands of construction workers working in a national retrofit program whereby you know people are entitled to, to grants of about 50% of the cost of bringing their houses up to A-grade yeah. housing. So that's all really good. And the good part of that is all of these people are engaged in really well-paid jobs. So you, know, you, ca you can't say that that is a problem, but you can't say it's a bad problem. Um, and, and, uh, there are some other problems that, that aren't quite so good, aren't there? I mean, for example, build costs rising ever, ever higher. Um, sure. You've obviously got the, the, the viability of land, as we've talked about. I mean, these, these, are, these are problems that it's hard to see a positive. I mean, absolutely, the, the, the fact that the workforce is being engaged in a huge amount of de development that's absolutely necessary, um, that is a good, a good problem. But those other problems, they seem rather more... They're not so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not just here. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're yeah. global, yeah. you know. I, I, listen, there's been an awful lot of press about build cost inflation. And, and then, you know, undoubtedly it's been, you know, it's crucifying our business in certain parts because of where those costs have gone. But it's something that will sort itself out in the next couple of years. The world will start to move those materials around at a better pace. Mm. The smelters in Germany and everywhere else will start milling steel again. So for me, and obviously as projects become unviable, the capacity that Hazel referred to in the industry gets better, right? The Intel plant will finish, the Children's Hospital will eventually finish, <laughs> called here. Um, so, you know, th that capacity will come back into the system. I think as well, you know, the ingenuity that's in Irish construction methodologies has really surprised the market. So we're starting to take labour out, certainly on-site labour, out of the equation. So I, I would say of the problems you've mentioned there, you know, we will find an equilibrium at some stage where build costs will come back to viability at some stage. Um, the big one for me is, you know, we will, as John's alluded to, the political system is now slowing down the, the availability of land. The international investment community may reprice these assets. They are the bits that are outside our control. Um, and what we have to do in the development community and elsewhere is control the ones that we can do. So have the right buildings in the right locations, we talked about sustainabilities in residential, it's all about amenities. Do you have good places to live? Control those ones, and I think in the long run, the market will provide sufficient return for investors, and I think we'll be fine. I guess, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I've, I've been sort of fishing towards is, yes, absolutely enviable growth now, and 
for the next three, four years. Does it go beyond that? Because it does seem that there are these these threats that, yes, are, are macro threats in many ways, um, but then you've got you've got other things. So uh, the sustainability agenda. I mean, we're just listing 20% of the stock um, on the commercial side is up to spec. There's an awful lot. Um, obviously, all new build coming through is, is going to be up to those standards. Um, in fact, exceeding those standards. But that still leaves this vast shelf that won't be, that needs to be retrofitted. Um, with that sort of added into the mix, is there a potential that we're going to see um, a lessening of, of appetite because the product just isn't there for, for um, investors to, to buy into, that it will attract them? Or is that far too pessimistic? I think you're too pessimistic. I think that is kind of my job. Yeah. <laughs> you get to be optimistic. I'm a developer. I'm an optimist. My heart. Um, yeah. No. I, look. Like. Look. I think there is going to be new stock coming through the market. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is a question, and it was alluded to in the video, and John and I spoke earlier about where's the occupancy market. There's no doubt about it. There's been a couple of headwinds there. Obviously, COVID, the work from home thing, but. What we're starting to see in Dublin is now a differentiation between new stock and old stock. We're starting to see better rents for mm -hmm. good, sustainable new stock. I think that's a trend. And John, you can give the broader market piece. I'm seeing it in our little micro piece of the market. And I'm sure across the market, it, it's going to widen. The question then becomes, what happens with the older stock? And I think Shane mentioned 200 quid a foot. I'd like to see his cost plan for converting some of these buildings. So <laughs> you know, it's, it is that and more. And the question is, What's the VP value of these buildings going to adjust to to enable us get out at the higher values? Yeah. Uh, and that's and, and some of these buildings will be repurposed. I mean, you know, people have mentioned conversion to resi. I think the engineering involved in that could be difficult, but you know, we're smart, we'll work it out. Um, but there are other sectors of the market which are hopefully going to fill that gap. And again, we just need to make sure that the stock in Dublin is adaptable, whether it's everyone's talking about life sciences, whether it's other sorts of buildings. You know, let's not talk ourselves down too much. We, we will create the right type of stock for the market that, when it's needed. It's, it's, it's about being in the position to be able to, to rise to those challenges and, and not only meet them, but... Be adaptable, it, but flexible them. and produce the right stuff. Yeah. In a nutshell. That sounds, sounds good to me. It's our motto. So is that... Is, that, <laughs> are, uh, is, is Dublin in a position to be able to do that? I mean, it's, we, we've sort of skirted around the, the planning situation. We've skirted around the... The development situation, the the land. I mean, are there? I suppose that the question that I, I I kind of want to ask is. It seems that there are certain things that are doing that are, clamping down on what needs to happen. So, as a quick survey, what are those things? How do we either get past them or, get around them or? Well, I, I, I would just say I suppose you know we are in a pretty unique position just coming out of um, COVID or you know or in the midst of it still potentially, but that piece with this war uh, going on so there's a there's a tendency to extrapolate the current out into out into the future so a very unique set of circumstances i'm sure that won't be around even in the medium term let alone the longer term um so and look the piece comes back to growth it's growing fast it's it's uh, it's an enviable challenge as, as you say so you know, uh, Ireland's economy now, going back to 2014, it was the fastest growing economy in Europe, grew about 3.5% that year, uh, came out of a bad time. Uh, but every year since then, um, it's been the fastest growing economy in Europe. And every year, nearly at the start of the year, it's, it's, it's going to be mid-tier mid because this can't continue forever kind of thing. But what the economy has done is it's aligned itself with long-term structural 
drivers of the global economy, such as tech, uh, now life sciences potentially, pharma, etc., and it occupies a, a sweet spot between the United States and Europe. So, you know, long term, those fundamentals still underpin the Irish economy, and it's kind of unique, a unique dynamic out there. So I'd, I'd be optimistic from those points of view. But we do need, I mean, we do need to recognise the challenges that are there, mm. and, and planning is a huge challenge. And we just seem to consistently shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to our planning system. Uh, and we need to get that right. And, um, and, and the, the public need, I think one of the things that, that you, you see, we have a mindset here, Piers, you, you probably aren't aware of this, but Irish people have a mindset that they want to live in a three-bed, semi-detached house. That's, that's your average Irish person. That's happiness for them. In fact, all of them want to live in a one-off house in the country. You know, that's, actually, detached that's yeah. actually, you know, that's yeah. actually, and I suppose that's one of the things that concerns me as a planner about the whole um, area of hybrid working and more people going back mm. to the towns and the villages and working from there remotely. Because I know for sure that when they settle in, that they will then think, ah, I get my house in the countryside. And that's completely contrary to all the sustainability agenda, Absolutely. right? So we need to convince people and to change the mindset that actually most of us need to live in an apartment setting at a higher density. And I think the government needs to change its fiscal policy to make it more attractive to, to almost a carrot approach mm. to, to, to get people living in, a, in an apartment type, higher density type. Uh, where, where do you start with that? Do you start with sort of the, the, the older um, people, the, more, the sort of senior living side, that, which would obviously free up an awful lot of larger yeah. houses that, mm -hmm. that people mm -hmm. are rattling around it? Well, as you see, I suppose, again, and as part of, the, maybe it's the same in the UK, you know, that the psyche is where an, an older couple have their house, mm. uh, that they're keeping it, they want to keep it because they want to pass it on to the kids, you know. So it's, it's and the two days a year, isn't it? It's the two days a year phenomenon of, you know, I, I won't have room for everybody at yes, Christmas and exactly, Easter. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a really good friend, actually, uh, who lives in Limerick in this enormous house. She had four kids. They're all gone, yeah. you know. They're all gone to the four corners of the world. And she's still living and waiting for them to come back every Christmas. You know? just, just in case. Just in case, you know. Just, and can she we just have a quick show of hands? Is that remarkably familiar for everybody in this room? Is that, is that yeah? Are you, how, are you expect, is it more than twice a year that you're expected to go back to the... Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> Christmas and Easter. Christmas, it's Christmas and Easter, yeah. isn't it? But a lot of those issues, I think, will start to fix themselves due to environmental standards. Like the idea of one-off housing, mm. one, it's massively subsidised by the state in terms of facilities, yeah. infrastructural connections. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, the view that someone's building their own house in the countryside in one-off housing is actually a drag on the exchequer because, you know, this, the fees for, say, Irish water, for electricity, they're standardised, whether you're 100 metres from the road or six feet from the road. You know, so there is an element of unfairness to it. But one of the big differences, and it comes down to our political system, is there's a very strong, uh, and Hayes mentioned in terms of that sort of rural lobby in, in the political system, where when we don't... local democracy become yeah. parish pump politics? Yeah. You we, know. we don't have sort of champions of urban development or of cities 
in the Irish political system. We haven't got a, you know, we haven't got a centralised mayor. So when you look at who's fighting for the agenda to develop Dublin into a, you know, a modern city, there isn't that figurehead there, and there isn't that agenda to being set. And you know, that feeds through not just planning in terms of individual housing; it's strategic planning. You know, as an Irish system, we don't do strategic planning well. We've been trying to build a metro since the late 60s. You know, and you know, when if you're a German investor and you arrive in Dublin Airport and you think, where is the train station? It doesn't leave a good first impression. So you know, it's the bigger picture planning issues which we need to get right. Because uh, actually, they go back quite a while as well. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes we made in Irish local government was back in 1993. I was working in Dublin County Council at the time. And they split Dublin County Council into three local authorities. So now, instead of in Dublin having two local authorities, they now had four. And then development spread out into Kildare, Meath, and Wicklow. So the Dublin metropolitan area has seven local authorities, seven different local authorities, seven different standards, seven different development plans. We absolutely need one metropolitan area for the greater Dublin area, a one plan, one set of standards. And, and you know, we, need, we really need to do that. To at, the, at the moment, am I right thinking that that's, that's also subservient to the, the county planning requirements and, and restrictions? Is that right? No, they are. The no, they, they are right. Okay, yeah, yeah. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Each, each county has yeah. its own development plan. <clears throat> Which, which, which sits underneath the National Development Plan. But of course, the figures we now know, are, um, are what we always suspect is now being confirmed with the census figures last week, mm. that the National Development Plan completely underestimates the future population. And all of the development plans from the local authorities take their figures from the National Development Plan. So all those development plans that we have done, at the, are doing at the moment, all underestimate growth. So if you're planning for underestimated growth, we're never going to get to, un until somebody recognizes that in the political mm. stream and takes it on and says, right, we need to fix this, you know, we're, we're going to continue to have problems of supply. And, uh, and it's not just problems of supply, it's cost of housing. I think we really, really need to recognize that it's fine for our people who work in the tech sector and the pharma sector and they've great salaries and they can afford the houses, but we need our nurses, our guards, our teachers, we need them to be able to access a housing affordably. And that's, I think, one of our biggest, that's one of our biggest threats and challenges. But I'm quite confident that we'll get there. <laughs> It'll just take us another few years. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, with, the, with the PRS side, is that something that you, you see? Is that actually tackling that? Do we have the potential there to, to solve that problem? Depends on what you're selling it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, look, PRS investment has been one of the areas of the housing market that's worked. Right? Yeah. If you look at the government targets for, for, for investment, you know, the one box that's actually exceeding probably what anybody wanted are the foreign investors coming in because they see where the rents are in Dublin. You may not like them, but the ultimately, without them, there will not be enough supply. And, and you know, this is not a developer telling them. I've met with every politician uh, who will, you know, who wants to meet because they, to be fair to them, want to understand the market. And I tell them, I say, look, without them, this won't happen. Um, so either they step up, and you know, if you talk that an average house is, is 
300 grand, right? An apartment in Dublin's probably four, 450. You know, we want to build 30,000 a year, that's nine billion. Does the state have nine billion a year to put into housing? Absolutely not. So, you know, even if they put in the 1.2 that they say they're going to do a year, what does it get us? You know, that trans by the time that translates back down, it's less than a third of what they need to do. So, or, sorry, a lot less. So we're going to need foreign investors to come into the market. Yes, the issue of affordability needs to be dealt with. I completely agree that the state should be providing more social housing, should be providing more affordable homes. They're trying through the LDA, they're going to try through Project TUSIG. And to be fair, look, people sit there, and I know, you know, to be Sinn Féin have made a huge issue out of it, if anyone thinks any politician doesn't want to solve the housing crisis, they're wrong, right? They all know their necks are on the line. Every time I meet them, they're full of good ideas. The problem is it filters from a politician and policy, and it's going to have to be a cross-subsidy in some regard across to, to, because of the cost of the apartments. By the time that trickles down through all the minnows and all the people who are in charge of the development, we certainly I don't see the urgency that's needed from the state sector to get to 30,000 homes or an appreciation of what it's going to cost. So. If they want to choke off private investment, we're just going to end up with less homes. That's it's it's as simple as that. That to me seems like the, the biggest handbrake on sustainable growth. That that seems like it's that's the the death grip on it. I mean, right from from your position, looking at inward investment, is is that something that that, that you see that, that people yeah. are actually? Well, the area that the investors that I deal with, it's PRS, they're, that's what they're, they're interested in. You know, they see the opportunity, they see, as, as Patrick said, the, what they can get, the yields, and so that's yeah. what drives it. And so most conversations I'm having now is in relation to PRS schemes and like that, looking for product. Again, ones that are there or thereabouts, through planning, you know, in construction, that, that model, that product is what is attracting them and what is uh, of interest, I think, more than anything else. The PRS space equally, as what Patrick saying, is, is, is an area which is also the, the most at, at risk in terms of political interference. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. You know, there's a whole range of things feeding in. You know, we had a situation five or six years ago you know, when Fine Gael said they wouldn't be putting in arbitrary rent controls. It happened because yeah. the opposition set the agenda <laughs> and, and this wave of populism fed through. And you know, there's a continued you know, impression that rents are expensive. Yes, rents are expensive. But if we actually break it back from a viability point, and if you compare, say, floor space for an office building, which you could get 60 quid a foot on, you know, okay, adjusting for some gross to net differences, your equivalent resi rent is, say, 35 to 40. So there's still a big viability gap between the commercial and the resi space. And that resi space has all of that additional political drag, be it on the regulatory side, but on, on rents, which is now broadly priced in, people can be comfortable with it. But the next fear is on the structure side, the vehicles you're using, we saw the interference with REITs, which has largely led to the demise of the sector because of the rule changes there. We're in the midst of further potential changes from the central bank in terms of LTV caps on IRFs and Irish real estate funds, which you know, will create further viability issues. Because if you're a funder for a PRS development, you're going to want an IRR of 12 to 15% if you're developing on the development side. If you pump in rent freezes, changes to stamp duty, changes to LTV, you're not going to get there. And that money is international. If you can get you know, a 7% unlevered return in Germany, your home market, or 7% unlevered in Ireland, you'll stick with your home market. Yeah. So we've had to be competitive. So our yields are more generous to these locations because the political risk is higher. So the idea that we're all going to converge to Stuttgart or Frankfurt or Hamburg style yields is unrealistic because we have a heightened risk picture. Um, but that competition and that, that difference in pricing has brought money in here, but it is fickle money. 
Mm. And you know, people need to realize that certain changes can spook the market quite quickly. I think there's, sorry, John, did you want to come in there? No, sorry. Oh. Well, good, don't. Um, I'm gonna ask these guys, because they're, they're, they're prettier, frankly. Um, I, <laughs> Much. <laughs> Not than you, no, than John. I mean, um, we, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. This, he admitted earlier he is moonlighting as an actor. I'm, I'm happy to moonlight as almost anything if anybody's got anything going. Um, I think I've, I've been taking the position of pessimist here, and, and we've had some optimistic and pessimistic viewpoints on Dublin's growth, its sustainability, the impact of of the sustainability agenda, the impact of the various macroeconomic issues, the impact of the political issues, the impact of financial issues that they're seeing. Um, can we have, uh, like, again, by show of hands, um, can all the, the optimists in the room raise their hands? There are some reluctant optimists. <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that, the people in the middle. How about the pessimists? You see, that's good. <laughs> that is better, isn't it? What's, uh, what's in the middle? That's exactly. So, so what about realists? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have realists, and then we'll have surrealists. So, uh, what if if you have if there is one thing that you could fix right now, looking at that picture going forward, what's it going to be? I'm going to move from from my left to closer to my left. Yeah, sure. For me, it's the, it's the planning uh, yeah. planning system. Planning system. I would say the macro potential rules on lending and mortgages. Planning, probably. <laughs> planning in a hard time. Yeah, I'm going to come down to the same as John. I think it's it's macro potential rules on lending, and I think it's more the financial side, debt rates, which probably not within their control, mm. but definitely one of the things we haven't mentioned is the is. You know, while the PRS have filled a gap in terms of institutional investment, they really only replaced the private investor that yeah. would have been there back from, you know, 23 to or 2003 to 2008. I think the government really does need to look at bringing back in the private investor because what they will do is, you know, certainly when we would look at, 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 at developing a residential block of apartments, you know, before it was always 50% of those were sold to the investor market, albeit a dispersed market as opposed to a, you know, a pension fund. I think if we can encourage that back through government policy, whether it's tax rates, whether it's other incentives and long-term rental, which is all great and I think could get to the affordable point that, as Hazel mentioned, I think that would be the one thing that I would bring in if I was the government. We also have to look at the lending point. Is that, you know, we look at where rents are now. So an individual taking an average two-bed flat is paying whatever, two, two, uh, two thousand a month or so in the city. You look at the affordability costs for the same on a mortgage basis, you know, 11, 1200 generally for say a 400,000 euro apartment. But then if we think about the appetite for debt, you know, if someone's locked into three and a half times their gross salary based on macrodential rules, they can't get on the ladder. Sure. Would that same person be happier paying four, four and a half times, so taking on slightly more debt? And that clicks in the viability point and you'd have schemes which would have ended up as PRS being bought by owner occupiers. And Maybe I'm wrong, but I think generally the public would probably be more comfortable with a slightly higher level of debt Which is where they and are. getting on the yeah. ladder. Yeah. Yeah. We're four and a half in the UK. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, and there was no discussion about this. The central bank brought this in, and, you know, probably because of our fear of leverage, undoubtedly goes because of the 06 to, or 07 to 2010 crash. We all just accepted this. But, you know, no one has ever shown me the analysis where it was three and a half times was accepted as, as the right way of doing that. And I think, you know, we really do need to look at that because. You know, nobody wants to put more debt on people's backs, but ultimately here, you know, would you prefer to be paying, as 
as Colin just said, you know, two, 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 four for rent, or, or one, eight interest, and at least own the place that you're in. Ooh. So I, I, I really think that's something that needs to be reviewed. And we are going down the route now of potential shared ownership and you know, equity packages, which again align us a bit more to sort of the norms in the London system, which you may help progress it. But then again, even when you mix all that package together and you look at the various subsidies, you know, the bill to rent or the PRS option still stacks up much better. Mm. It's a cleaner transaction, it's easy, mm -hmm. and it can be done quite quickly ahead of sale. And if you look at you know, some of the, the very rare, few limited um, bill-to-sell apartment schemes, you know, you're talking three years of marketing yeah. plus, and still they're slow to get off the ground. You, know, you can get a nice, clean, easy transaction to a German institution, no hassle, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. And that's what happens in the market. The problem is there's a perception, of course, then, that those units are not ending up with first-time buyers, which is obviously false because they wouldn't be built in that place. Right. I think one of the bigger issues, which again has been muddled in the political narrative, is we have all of this negative terminology around these types of buyers and institutional buyers. But the largest single buyer of blocks of flats, blocks of apartments, is the state or semi-state. You know, the real vulture fund out there is the agencies buying on behalf of local authorities. You know, they're the ones taking away units from first-time buyers. And this is a point, because it's not politically uh, attractive for the, the opposition, hasn't been played out. Mm. Is that we have a situation where government entities buying with very, very cheap debt are buying en masse. You know, and that's one of the big frustrations. They're outbidding first-time buyers. Yeah. Do we have any questions from, from the floor? Good. Do we have any questions on, on this machine here? Natalie knows how it works. Oh, yes. We've got a roving mic somewhere that will... Okay. Thanks. It's, uh, oh, that's loud. Um, thanks. That's really interesting conversation so far. I think just getting back to the planning that most of you kind of put forward is the biggest problem notwithstanding the major kind of restructuring stuff that you were talking about, what do you think can be done about it in the short term? Like, what would be something that we could put in place that would solve? And I suppose, what are the major issues, if you were to kind of sum it up? Or is that a very difficult question? And what can be done about it in the short term? Well, I think, you know, there is no short-term solution. Like, for instance, the government last year, in a piece of legislation, they slipped in uh, an, an additional piece that hadn't been talked about in the public at all, whereby if you had an existing planning and you hadn't built it out, then it, you, could not, you could no longer extend that planning. So there are a huge amount of plannings in the system at the moment that were four years old or whatever and they just, they just stopped. You no longer had planning. Um, I think if, if the government reversed that, so that if you had a planning in the last five years, that was extended for another five years, um, I think that would, that would be really helpful. I think another big mistake they made was when they sent up, set up the Land Development Agency, they didn't give it planning powers. You know, so. The Land Development Agency is just like Ballymore, it's just like Bartra. You're out there trying to get planning permission. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, Piers, but we have a third-party objection system whereby anyone, anywhere, anytime can object to anything. And they do. And they do, <laughs> in their droves. And, uh, you know, no, it, the, our planning system doesn't differentiate between 
I live right beside this development and I'm being affected by it, or I live, you know, a mile away, but I just don't fancy it. You know, it, it makes no differentiation between those at all. So I think that, and, and we have a planning appeal system, which is supposed to make decisions in 16 weeks and never does. Yes, yesterday was the 12 month anniversary of an application that we have with the Planning Appeals Board. You know, so time, who pays for all that time? I mean, you know, it, time is money, is interest, and it all ends up going on to the price of the unit or the rent of the unit ultimately. So I really think if, if we did things like a statutory 16 week time limit for our, our planning appeals board to make decisions. With an assumption in favour if, if that has been Well, if, if you've already you been through far? a public consultation yeah. process for the development plan and lands are zoned for residential or mixed use development, why wouldn't you have a presumption mm. that a, an application is going to get permission if technically your, your everything is fine? Um, but we don't have that here and, and we need to have it. There's a good appetite for a statutory change. The planning system isn't there. There's, there's dissent on SHDs, all that sort of stuff within the government parties. You know, there is this move that they feel that the decision has been taken away from their councillors. So the idea that we get an easy bill through to fix the planning problem on a statutory basis is not there because you will have considerable opposition within government on these measures. You know, the ways we could do things perhaps more creatively and, you know, 10 years ago, we had a great organization in the city of Dublin Docklands Development Authority, yeah. which was set up. It had a land bank, it had a border effectively in what it could do, it had planning powers, everything. And it developed things very effectively in ways which were a little bit separate removed from local democracy and local authorities. Again, going down that route with broad brush powers for certain strategic locations and areas is one way where you might get things moving politically. But even so, when you do have strategic development zones, they create problems, they create headaches. You know, some of Patrick's schemes, you know, ebb into that in terms of the Docklands area. Yep. You, you were limited by an arbitrary height cap for no logic particular reason, but again, it was a structure which did bypass some of the planning rules, but in the end, the capacity wasn't there in terms of what could have been done. Yeah, I mean, I've always said it, like, you know, we developed one of the first blocks down in the new phase of the master plan, and if you look what's happened under our planning regime, because local government effectively set the heights, mm -hmm. and the people who vote for them are the people who currently live in that district, there's never an incentive on the local planning authority to raise the height limits. It's not just about height, but that has consequences, and we've said this a couple of times. If you look at where we're building in London, and by the way, planning over there is not easy either, no. right? But they are more appreciative of height or less negative is probably a better word. Um, you tend to get taller buildings, you get more ground space freed up. Mm. We're obsessed in, because we buy these sites for the price we have to buy them, because we can't go up, we have to spread these low fat buildings and try and make the facade look well. Whereas in London, we tend to go higher, we create more p parks around the ground floor. So like, the height argument, and I've tried to argue this with many planning authorities, you know, if we get more height, we can give more space on the ground, we can have more amenity space and all that stuff. It falls on deaf ears. I think what I would do with the planning authorities, if I'm honest, and, and absolutely correct on the legislative side, I think we are, if, the, if what I believe is coming through, we are going to get some form of a new planning act coming through which may address some of these. We'll see what that's like in practice. Um, and that could fall at the final hurdle. I think the other side of that is we need to resource local authorities. So. The reality, a lot of what Hayes was saying around, you know, 
the delay in not hitting their statutory deadlines has been the fact that we've now unraveled the SHD system. The board, which had staffed up to deal with it, now have a whole pile of people who are probably not doing it. The local authorities don't have people. We submit the applications. The easiest thing in the world to do when you're not hitting your statutory deadline is give you an FI, request for further information. That kicks it down for another couple of weeks. And then potentially, my worry is if we keep imposing statutory on them, they'll just refuse it, but maybe not. So I think we need to staff up. We need to recognize the planning is a key part of this supply problem, and not just the fact that we can't get the plannings, but the fact that it's a process and needs to be resourced properly. But also the fact that the, the, the problems with the planning system affect investors. Exactly. Yeah. Because awesome. you know, we know there's no point in talking to investors until you have planning. They're not interested in talking to you. And, and globally, people know about the, the problems in the Irish planning system. Sorry, there is one other point. Um, they're doing a round of county development plans at the moment based off an old census, and old census numbers and a, you know, a density numbers, which I don't think compare to European norms. And I think the very first simple thing they need to do is revise, unfortunately, the county development plans, which are probably, I don't know how many of them have been adopted across the country now, but even if it's 30% of them, all of them need to be changed. That's just the reality, and they're going to have to get to that. I think the housing minister himself knows that. Um, I suspect the planning regulator, which... You know, is a new office, and you know, Nile Cousins gets a lot of grief in the papers. But the reality is, he is trying to at least police the process. Um, you know, that th those county development plans are going to have to be amended, and they're going to have to allow for greater density. And that is two fronts, as John said. Some of the green belt may have to come back into play, or else we'll get more density on the brown belt. How likely do you feel that the, is, John? The, the big Sorry. issue I would have with it is that it's the 50 50 uh, growth scenarios that, that underlines it, right? So out to 2040, we're using a scenario based on 50% growth in Dublin and the Mideast region and 50% in the rest of the country. Now, it's a laudable aim. It's balanced regional economic growth, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, stop sprawl. But it's not the reality. Even since uh, the last 10 years, it's been 62% uh, versus 38. You know, So it's just, it's not reality. It's not what's going to happen. Uh, but it's OK good having good goals. But it's basically what it's doing. It's going to cap the amount of development available in Dublin. Yeah. Um, and the way to solve or economically develop Cork isn't by keeping down Dublin. You know, uh, that's, not, that's not the way it's going to work. For example, if you're a tech company coming to Dublin, you're not going to you know, consult the goals of the NPF before you put your next office. You know, and say, look, we need some here uh, out west because there's no offices out there, right? So it's not going to happen like that. The opposite is going to happen. Uh, agglomeration, clustering, more of a talent pool, more people come in, and Dublin actually grows faster, much faster than envisaged. Uh, the problem with the NPF is that all the funding, the National Development Plan, has to follow it. So we're basically planning on desires rather than reality, and that's a very dangerous place to be, I'd say. Well, that brings us back to the political issue, is that we need a statutory powers and a political champion for Dublin. You know, we need someone with the powers on transport like you have in London, the powers on development, executive overrides on planning grants, mm -hmm. you know, where you can get a mayoral decision on a planning scheme in London, which can bypass local authority powers in certain cases. And you know, that'll help you know, force the correct agenda in terms of you know, developing what's required in terms of the capacity, the infrastructure, etc. I thought it's been, you know, we were chatting earlier about the issues at airports. You know, and one of the solutions that has been mooted by government, TDs, MPs, and things in Ireland about the capacity issues in Dublin Airport was, well, why don't the planes divert to Shannon or Cork? You know, that's the mindset you can divert 
um, economic growth or economic capacity, you can't. Yeah. There's a reason people want to fly to Dublin, and it's as simple as that, and that can't change. And forcing uh, unnatural uh, levels of economic uh, dispersion isn't logical. We need to develop the necessary capacities to do so. You, you can do your best, put in the infrastructure in, in, mm -hmm. in the regions. Uh, it's just that you should support, you know, uh, plan for the reality, uh, try for the best that you're trying to do, perhaps. Um, uh, you know, I suppose the feeling is that you need somebody in there to, to really put in the goals, uh, uh, you know, to implement the vision, right? So it's, uh, but, but first and foremost, your goal has to be achievable, realistic and attainable. Uh, and that's why we know even though it's a plan to 2040, we know from day one it's not going to work. So, you know, you've got a problem. Yeah. That's that competition point, is that new? It's not a situation where Dublin and Limerick and Cork are competing against each other. Exactly. You know, Dublin's competing against Amsterdam, against yeah. Frankfurt, against London. Yeah. So we have to start thinking on, you know, on, on the necessary scale and realistically, you know, what we're competing with in terms of for jobs and for investment. And we talk, I'd just like to say on that, I mean, it's really important, and, and the, the theme of the conference, I mean, we're talking about building costs and et cetera, and, and the various headwinds potentially, but the housing market is, is the main one, you know, that's, yeah. and that's in front of us for the last while, and it's in, within our power. Uh, that's not externally driven. That's within our power to change uh, if the will is there. Mm. Well, that's it. it does, and it does seem that the will is there, obviously, from the commercial side, from the private sector side, but also from the public sector side, from the, from the government. The will is there, but it seems that the approaches are not the best or not fully thought through. I mean, it seems that the, what you were talking about earlier, Hazel, it's, it's that law of unintended consequences, isn't it? That all of these things are done with the best possible best intentions. intentions. Exactly. Yeah. But like saying, well, you need to you need to make a decision within 16 weeks. As you said, Patrick, you know what the decision's going to be if you say it's going to be done in 16 weeks. It's going to be no. It's always going to be no. And then you can appeal it, and they have to respond to the appeal within 16 weeks. Guess what? It's going to be no. And that seems to be, is it that we've got too many restrictions, too many sticks, not enough carrots? And is there the political will? Is there the, is there the, the, the capacity to have more of that incentive? Based but system. You, you can take it quite a skeptic, uh, more uh, sinister or um, cynical is the word I think uh, view of it, right? So, you know, hotels, offices, industrial, uh, they have good supply response in Dublin, yeah. Ireland, uh, supply response to rents like any other market. So it's not anything unusual about Ireland. Um, there's interventions in the market. Politically, they're very attractive, short term. If you don't have to wait along around for the the longer-term consequence. I think a lot of those are known up front, and they're populist measures uh, that I would say are known potentially from day one. I mean, uh, the rent controls were brought in 2016. Simon Coveney was the minister at the time, and there was a sunset clause um, of 2009 uh, of the end of the rent controls. That was three years ago. 2019. 2019, yeah. So obviously, they changed two or three times last week, last year alone. Last week, now that would be bad, but <laughs> last year. Yeah, and I suppose year. the thing to take out of that, though, you know, we still have really strong, hopefully, demand from international communities. So they've absorbed that in a way and said, right, now I can price it, keep it. But we keep moving the goalposts. We started with four, then it was inflation, then we realized inflation was pointing the four, we moved it to two. You know, it's talking about going to zero. Uh, you know, we, we, 
we keep going back and plucking the golden goose and if we just need to be very, very careful because, you know, I think Colm said it as well, you know, these investors will put up with so much. We, we, we've been very successful in, in maintaining, you know, rents and levels that, well, it's probably wrong to say, but we've been, we, our rent levels sustain investment, our yield levels currently, debt markets aside, sustain investment and we need to be certainly not discouraging this band of investors from the market, whether, as Colm said, through making the structures poor or else interference in the market and, and constant headlines. Um, you know, and I think it's important to say, like funnily enough, again, sorry not to say, but I've met the political parties. If you read their, their policies, and it's great bedtime reading, you, you, know, you will see that they actually do support investment in the sector. Even Sinn Féin have admitted that you know, upwards of 20 to 25% of the stock that's needed in the country can be for private investors. They just don't politically say that. They, they know, right, because Obviously, a lot of the parties on the left are making hay at the moment on this process. They, they see that people are suffering, and people are suffering, and we need to be honest about that. Um, but they're quite happy to say that the state's going to build 50% of the housing. As I say, I think we need a mature debate about whether the state can supply that $4 billion or whatever is needed to build all these houses. I, I think it's the scale of the challenge. Sorry, for oh, I, I think it's the scale of the challenge. I mean, in Europe, Dublin's unique. So there's, this is UN data uh, between 20, uh, 20 to 2035. There's basically 162 urban areas in Europe, uh, so not just capital cities, obviously across the entirety of Europe. And Dublin's the fastest growing of any urban area over the next 15 years. So we look at some countries in Europe undergoing secular, uh, you know, actually declining populations, yeah. notwithstanding their cities, there's still an urbanisation element. But Dublin is so far removed from the rest of the scenario because we're, we're going, undergoing a delayed population boom and we also have uh, high employment growth that brings in further people. So it's a much different, you know, the, the scale of the emergency over the next 15, 13 years is really acute. And I think that's the issue where we treat ourselves like the rest of Europe. We're on a, we're a different plane to the rest of Europe in terms of that dynamic. Is that, is that the key thing to take away, Mario? Is that, is that the, the main thing that we should be focusing on in terms of inward investment, that, that actually Dublin is unique it is special it's doing incredibly well i can sit here and be as cynical as i like because it gets really nice responses from you guys um but actually it's we're a good in a, news story yeah it's, aren't they boring good news <laughs> stories who wants yeah. those yeah is, well i have my hand up as an optimist so uh, yeah <laughs> i i would think it's a good news story and as uh, hazel said there's an awful lot of other parts to play to play in, in our story here uh, in, on the economic front and like that we are doing very well our economy is going very well and as a result there's growth even from the staff perspective. We do need to fix the housing, we, we'll attract more people in, all of the, the people even coming in, um, in the multinationals, they have staff, who, they need housing. So we just need to, if we can bring it together, I think, you know, we, we'll keep growing. The only issue is time is not particularly on our side. Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, we are two and a half years away from a potentially nightmarish political situation, um, and housing has driven that. And we're in a big hurry to fix issues with capacity for the economy, be it airports, hotels, public transport, housing. We have a lot of capacity issues. And I'll be sort of the realist world well, office. I don't think the political will is there. You know, we've seen another delay to the National Transport Infrastructure Plan. You're pushing out metro completions, pushing out Lewis completions by 10, 15 years. Where is the urgency and the political will to fix these, these issues, which will open up you know, more areas for housing, for development. And as an example of a site I always go back to, um, which one of our clients is building, one of the best served sites is the Red Cow site, Hibernia's scheme, 
It's got two Lewis stops. It's got two motorway junctions, incredibly well served, yet the planners won't grant it, you know, um, the rezoning on it. So we have certain things where it's just time is not on our side, because that site's going to be pushed down to the next development plan, so a further seven years. Yeah. So my fear is that what's necessary to keep us on a relatively stable political path is a very limited window of time, and, and that's concerning. Um, because you know, we could be in a situation where our attractiveness as a place to be and a place to live could be eroded quite quickly in two or three years. Colin, did you put your hand up as an optimist? A realist, yeah. realist. realist. <laughs> well, the thing is, again, the, the realist prospect is that that's priced in. You know, the reason Irish yields are higher is because of those risks. So people understand the dynamic, and it stacks up, and it is a rational place to invest from an income basis because you're getting that premium on your returns. So at the moment, there's logic to it, and there's a pricing in that, yes, we need a higher yield because the outlook's a bit more questionable on a three to five year view. So it stacks up as an investment location, but to fix the bigger problems, you know, timing is an issue. Well, also a, a complete dearth of supply stacks up as an investment position, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, but it's not good for, for Dublin. It's not. Um, any more questions from the, the floor? Yes. Can I, can I ask just, you know, we've talked about the issues here, the planning issues, all that. As an industry, what can we do? Because, like, I've listened to this argument for years and I've had the same argument, but it doesn't get any better. So what can we do as an industry? Like, at this stage, you'd nearly feel like getting militant about it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. No, but nothing changes. this now, because I need to think. <laughs> so like, for, look, from, from the development community, like, I suppose what I said kind of at the very start of this thing is, I think what we just need to keep focusing on is having buildings which are coming through the planning system, albeit with all the delays and get into it, design those buildings to be the right type of buildings, whether it, it, that people want to live in from our, we two businesses, commercial business and a resi business, make sure, and this is why I say you can always get too much clouded in the macro stuff, keep designing the right buildings with the right amenities, the right mix and the right services in the right locations. Stay at that and that's what our design teams do. On the commercial side, we're having a pause, we're thinking about what those buildings want to look like. You know, office blocks in the future will definitely change. I'm a big believer that people will still need office blocks, but I do think what goes into those office blocks, whether that's space planning, what's offered in the office blocks, or indeed what's around those office blocks will change. So as the community, as a development community, what we need to keep doing is focus on that. Let the other stuff, as in the macro environment, sort itself out, and work where you can with the political class to fix the roadblocks in planning, you know, to work with our contractors to make sure the, the build materials that we're using, the cost of those materials and the methodology we're using are best in class. That's all we need to focus on. Hopefully everything else will work itself out because I just feel if you try to fix everything, you won't get there. Judicial reviews will still come though. Yeah, well, you see, the judicial review is out of the box now. So, like, SHD is gone, right? And, you know, the board seems to have thrown in the towel now. They're just pulling back on everything, right? So I think, and look, we, we have a couple still in there, so this is, this is not spoken from the optimist. But, um, you know, LRG system is up and running. I think we need to embrace it, get in there, and it's resourced the councils properly. Um, my worry is the genie is out of the bottle, but people will now see judicial review even on council plans. Yeah, I think that's the worry. People think JRs are, are to do with the SHD system? Yeah. No. I think you'll find Section 34s, you'll find um, the LRG system. They will. They just think, you know, mention the environment, your JR is free, and people know that now, and unless the law is changed, uh, we're going to be stuck with that. So I think, though, the interesting thing, though, is an awful lot of the JRs are at the first stage at the moment, so the courts initially, you know, they quash them. Yeah. But actually, 
those permissions haven't gone away. You know, if your BAT report was wrong and your entire development of 1,000 units got quashed, what we do is what we've always done. Be patient, get back in there again, make sure you've ticked all the boxes. And I, I would believe that eventually a lot of those JORs that are actually going through the court system, they'll actually come out with positive results for the developer. You know, so it, what, it, what it means is that our planning permissions are delayed. So what we're pricing in is, is the price of that extra delay. But I do believe ultimately, because I certainly know, you know where some of our developments are being JORed, I'm quite confident that ultimately we will get those permissions. So um, even though it's, you know, the JOR is just, it's a nuisance almost, because the lands are zoned for development. So eventually permission is going to come. But it's the delay is the problem at the moment. Does, does that answer your question of what you can, you can do? Yeah, you it can does. It does to an extent, like, put the militancy aside. <laughs> listen, we can all drive the spent trucks into government buildings. Yeah. I'm just you not sure that's going to do it. And, uh, yeah. and look, listen, don't get me wrong, right? And, you know, we engage with the political class through the lobbying system, for the record. And, you know, we, we try and get our, our view across. Like, what I will say, you know, we go in there as a commercial property developer, and no one cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you go in as a resi property developer, they want to know what your margins are. And I keep saying to them, listen, if this was the most profitable business in the world, shares in Glenvay and Clare would be through the roof, and I'd be focusing on, on resi. That ain't what happening, right? So you can rest assured, lads, there's no one making a fortune building resi, right? And with all the risks in it, you, would, you, know, you, you need it to be. Our DNA is resi, so we've stayed in the sector. And I believe in resi, mm -hmm. as long as we can keep building, as we said, you know, semi-Ds for the first-time buyer outside the, the, the Dublin conurbation and, and, you know, build for apartment blocks at a reasonable cost uh, with a reasonable profit and either sell them to investors, individual or institutional, or if we can fix the viability gap for people, shared equity is a piece to do with that. Mm. Project Tussig is probably a piece to do with that. I'd love to bring back the first-time buyer to be able to buy a two-bed apartment. In fact, nothing pleases Valley more more than giving someone keys for their own house, right? And Sean shakes their hand and everything is great. They just can't afford it. That's, you know, they, they cost 450 to put there. Yeah. People can get to 380. That's it. And we see it. You, you pop anything over 400 grand and the demand goes and that's where the market is, you know? Do we have any, any other questions from the floor? Anyone? Going once? Going twice? No, yes. <laughs> Good. That's what I've got to find out. He's waiting for the last one. Uh, I think my question's about uh, embodied carbon and how important that's going to be. I've seen today in the paper that I think Marks and Spencers in Oxford Street in mm. London yeah. have had their development postponed because I think of 40,000 tonnes of embodied carbon. If we bring that into Dublin and they talk about maybe repurposing buildings, in terms of feasibility, what reward are we going to have for repurposing that building from maybe commercial to residential and the effect that has on the bottom line? Because if I'm looking at my Excel sheet and it just doesn't stack up, what reward is there or what can the government do to help us? It's, it's yet to kick in, isn't it? The, the, the idea of green premium brown discount, that's, that's still something that everybody seems to be aware of, but we're not seeing. I think it's there in the occupancy market. I think it's there in the market. Yeah, I, I think to answer that, that job's question, like, you know, we, yeah, we talk about these zero billings. We're all clear it's zero in operation. Mm. The big 
listen, one is, what are we going to do with embodied carbon? I completely yeah. agree with you. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're trying all these new methodologies, but the reality is it's steel and concrete, okay? And I've gone and I've looked at laminate timber buildings in Denmark and I've done everywhere. Just don't see it. So, uh, you know, I, it, there isn't an answer to your question apart from it goes to viability. If there's going to be a tax on embedded carbon, embodied carbon, then, yeah, it just adds to the cost of it. Um, and I think it will change the way people look at knocking these buildings because at the moment there's no tax, if you like, for knocking an old brownstone or whatever you want to call it, putting a brand new shiny office block there would lead Bream, we platinum, we go for it, right? Uh, and great, we all pat ourselves on the back because we've created a net zero carbon building in operation. But in the meantime, we've you know released all this carbon effectively into the building. So I don't have an answer for you, to be honest, but somebody's going to wake up to it at some stage and see it's a problem. Well, it's, also, it's, it's a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, like we're talking about the vast majority of the built environment. Yeah. Well, the business models are going to evolve. Where there are certain significant supply constraints and requirements, like housing, you will see development. But like, if we look at any of the large international developer clients, investor clients we would have, we'd be thinking, look, post-2030, you're not going to be a developer. You're going to be a refurbisher. Yeah. You know, if you look at Durban, Britland, Great Portland, you know, they're in a big hurry to build out their land bank because they know it's going to be prohibitively expensive in five, six, seven, eight years. And I think that's the way we're going to go. So people are going to look, particularly for those with institutional portfolios, they're going to look what needs to be done, develop these things probably at an accelerated pace. Then after that, it'll be largely passive, it'll be refurb-led. But with, with the cost of conversion being so high, with the cost of, of refurbishment, or, I mean, we're not even talking about refurbishment, are we? We're talking about such extreme refurbishment that it's, it's redevelopment with extra difficulties because you've got to keep as much as you possibly can yeah. and build right. around we'll keep, it. Exactly. We'll so so with, with those costs so high, I mean, doesn't that really put enormous pressure on the viability? Doesn't that... Yeah, but no, look at the rental differential emerging in the London market, particularly for you know top energy rated buildings. Mm. You know, you're talking 20, 30, 40 quid a foot already in the West End differential because of that. Um, and then if you actually look at the businesses and you take the Irish businesses or the Irish tech firms, like their rental cost as a proportion of their Irish turnover is irrelevant. Absolutely yeah. irrelevant. So if the rent goes up 50%, it makes absolutely no difference. It's a rounding error. No. So there's, there's your 100 quid a winner. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. But that's, that's not, I mean, that, yes, that's true of certain occupiers and, and some parts of the market, but it's not, it can't be true of the, the entire market. No, it can't just be not. absorbed, can it? No. So is there, I mean, is, are, we, are we looking again at another position where this, this is happening? I could sit here and chat with you for hours, but I'm not allowed. Um, are we in a position where, again, this is something where we need, we need more carrots? We've got the sticks. The sticks are huge with this one. I mean, the big stick is the world burns. So, pessimists, anyone? Um, the, that picture is really quite clear. So what are, we, need more, we need more carrots, don't we? we need Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. If, if there's one takeaway from this, it's uh, less of a stick approach, more of a carrot approach, I think, yeah in terms of policy, help a lot. And there is no doubt about it, though, comes right, like, rents are going to rise. Yeah. Like, rents are going up because, you know, I think, you're, I think he's right in terms of whatever way we tax carbon in the, in the construction process, or I think people will stop knocking blocks, would be refurbing blocks, and to pay for all of that, rents are going to rise. Yeah. Because it's just it's not, gonna there's, there's going to be no stock, right? So, you, 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 you know, and I think he's, he, he's right. For most businesses, whether they're paying 
55, 60, 65. I mean, rents have jumped hopefully to 70 quid a foot on some of these premium office blocks in town. It, that's just been absorbed, you know? So I, I think rents will rise, particularly in city centre for well-located blocks. And that'll pay for it. Well, um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to my panel. I'm, I'm going to clap them. You don't have to, but I will. And thank, you all, and, and thank you to our sponsors as well, um, Ballymore, DWF, and, and Savills. Um, I think I'm, I'm just going to leave you with the thought of, of fewer sticks and more carrots, which I think we can all get on board with. Uh, we don't have carrots, unfortunately, in, in the next room, but we do have drinks. So um, help yourselves, and I'll see you in there. Thank you very much.